Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 62. And so glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be back with you. Uh, just remember that you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, and help spread the word through social media. That's one way we're going to get this podcast out there to more listeners. So please, if you like it, share it around and tell your friends about it so we can have uh, more and more people get on board with the program. Okay, so today I want to talk about an issue that I think has become dominant in the news cycle, and that is the idea of fake news and a free press. And um, I want to start with um, something that Tom Brokaw. Now, if you don't know, Tom Brokaw, of course, for a long time, was a major player in the mainstream media, as he was the anchor on NBC Nightly News for years, decades. And now that he's retired, he's got this little thing, kind of like a Paul Harvey-esque piece that he does daily, called An American Story. If you've heard this thing, it's awful. Um, it, it's it's uh, the most vapid piece of journalism I hear on the radio nowadays, but because it's Tom Brokaw, he has this name, and so people want to go, oh, what does Tom Brokaw have to say? So the other day I was driving home, and I was listening to uh, talk radio, and uh, I'm in my car for maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day uh, each way to work, so I don't have much time. But that just happened to be on. I was listening to the news, and then Tom Brokaw's An American Story came on, and of course, so Tom Brokaw gets on the radio, oh, there's Tom Brokaw in uh, um, we we um we, we, yeah, uh, Donald Trump has a strange fascination with uh, with the press and uh, he, 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 we we know how to count electoral college votes and the size of inaugural crowds and and uh, and uh, we know that federal judges are co-equal branch of government from, from the left. So he mumbles this garbage about how Trump has got this strange fascination with attacking the mainstream press. Uh, and he says, well, we know about fake news is a problem, but uh, the president gives us plenty of news that appears fake to talk about. So Brokaw's insisting that Trump's attack on the press or the federal judiciary or some of the things he said, this all creates fake news. And, of course, Kellyanne Conway's uh, statement that they have alternative facts has produced a firestorm of response over the last couple of weeks about how the Trump administration is manipulating the news in their favor, and how this is creating problems. So that got me thinking about the idea of the press. And I think most Americans don't understand the history of the American press and how the American press has never really been uh, objective, ever. I mean, we have this, this idea that somehow the American press needs to be objective, that they need to be right down the middle, tell both sides of the issue, and that's what we got to do. Well, you can't really have that, and you've never really had that. You never really had it at any time in American history. It's always been been slanted one way or another. 
even by choosing the stories to talk about, you're showing your biases. So, and this is how it works in anything that has an intellectual pursuit. If you write a book, if you write an article, if you talk about the news, this is how it works. There's always some type of bias. And so this idea that we have somehow have an objective press, I mean, this is just hogwash. We've never had that, and we shouldn't have that. And I wrote a piece about this um, right about the, during the 2016 election talking about how the press has always been, uh, historically always been biased. So let's, let's go through that. Now, when I was, when I was growing up, uh, you had the nightly news from the three major networks. And my family would sit down. We would watch the local news as we ate our supper, watch the local news, and then at 6 o'clock the nightly news would come on. And according to how my uh, father was uh, thinking about things that time, we would watch CBS or NBC or ABC, depending on which one he liked that at that particular point. And that's all you had. And, of course, you had the newspaper, which we received a daily newspaper for years we lived around the Washington, D.C. area, so it was the Washington Post. That's what we got every day. Uh, and, of course, I was too young to really read into it too much, but I would get it. Uh, particularly as a youngster, I would like to read the sports page. You know, and My brother would read the comics page. My brothers would read the comics page. And, and uh, so that's what they would do. And uh, I got interested in sports journalism. But then as I got older, I started reading more of the, uh, the headlines, you know, the political stuff. And when I went off to college... Uh, part of my routine was going to the library and getting the newspaper every day, but not just a newspaper. I would pick up about five, and I would generally focus on the editorial sections in each newspaper. So I would read the Washington Times. I would read the Washington Post, the New York Times. Uh, I would read uh, the Wall Street Journal, whatever papers I could get my hands on uh, to go through the editorial section because, to me, uh, you know, reading the headlines and going through them, but it was always interesting to find out what people actually had to say about the headlines, to say about the issues of the day. And I liked getting into these differences of opinion, and it was very clear at that point to me uh, the biases of the papers. It's, I mean, it's not, it wasn't hard to figure out, and I think most people that were news junkies could figure these things out. But So after you had these big three networks, and they had such a monopoly on, on the media— then you had the advent of talk radio. About the mid-80s, you started seeing syndicated talk radio programs, and this was another way to get the news. A lot of people don't think it's that way, but I mean it is. So if you go out today and you listen to talk radio, and the left-wing talk radio has never been successful, but of course, you know, that on the right, you've had Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, and I, I don't, uh, Mark Levin's awful in a lot of ways, and they're all incorrect, uh, you know, Glenn Beck and uh, but uh, this particular genre of media became very popular. People riding in their car for a long period of time, they're at their office, they can put on the radio, listen to it while they're there. And it was a way for them to acquire news, of course, with a bias, with a slant. But a lot of these people thought this way anyways. And so they're thinking, you know, I'm, this person is telling me why I think the way I do. And so you had the rise of talk radio. Then... Uh, of course, about the same time, you had the rise of cable news. So you could go out, and I remember uh, watching CNN or CNN headline news. At first, that's really all you had, but it was news constantly. So you get out and get headline news. Of course, also the Weather Channel, not constant weather news. And if sports news, you could go out and watch ESPN. So you had these cable news shows for a variety of different 
subjects. You had you know what we call traditional news, but you also had it for sports. You had it for the weather. And so people would sit there and put on the Weather Channel and watch it all day, put on uh, sports news and watch that all day, uh, you know, put on CNN headline news and every 30 minutes it recycles and you'd watch that all day. And then, of course, you had the rise of Fox News and MSNBC and some of the other cable news networks. And so now you had competition. But you still were narrow, fo- narrowly focused on these few channels. Even for talk radio, you had a few big hosts, and then eventually you would start getting smaller market hosts. You know, they might have a program just at their local radio station, so you'd have a little bit of difference of opinion. All these things, though, are still biased. They're all biased. CNN was biased, Fox News, MSNBC, they're all biased. None of them were objective, and that's fine. And I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to wrap it back around to history here in a few minutes. And then, of course, you had the Internet. By the time I went to college, the Internet was still very, very young. And uh, you could get some news off the Internet. You started seeing uh, this, this uh, you know, grow in, in popularity. And, of course, you know, the Drudge Report and others started becoming popular during the Clinton administration, particularly during the uh, Monica Lewinsky situation and, of course, the impeachment, later impeachment of Bill Clinton. So you had the rise of the Internet. And, of course, the Internet exploded, and now you've got Dozens and dozens and dozens of news sites on a variety of different sides. You've got left-wing news sites, right-wing news sites, libertarian news sites. You've got people out there talking about the news from their own position. And this is very much like the way it used to be in the 18th and 19th centuries. So we went from a situation, and I'll I'll connect the dots here in a second. We we got a situation now that was very much like it was 200 years ago. And then you have podcasting. So that's the latest in this news-driven environment. So the podcast is not regulated by the FCC like talk radio. You just record something and then you put it out there and people can listen to it or not. You put it on iTunes or wherever it is and uh, people people can listen to what you have to say. And if they like what you have to say, they can subscribe to your podcast. They can find podcasts on a variety of different topics. I mean, my gosh, there's something out there for everyone. On, on any kind of issue you'd want to talk about. If you want to talk about cats on a podcast, you can do that. Uh, you want to talk about sports podcasting, it's out there. Weather podcasting, you know, uh, you know, kind of special topics podcasting, political podcasting. All of it is news. This is a news podcast. I just do it with a little different spin because I talk about history and how that relates to the news. So if you're a libertarian, you've got the Tom Woods Show and the Jason Stapleton program. Uh, you know, you've got conservative podcasts. A lot of those conservative podcasts are simply the major hosts getting into this podcast thing. Or, you know, even in things like sports media, you've got um, the very famous and, and good, I mean, his, his program is funny, Jim Rome, doing a podcast now. He just condenses his program down and puts it into a podcast so more and more people uh, can get it. So podcasting now is taken off as part of the media. I mean, this, this, is, this is a media show. Uh, I, I have listeners. I can talk about things, and we can get the news this way. So this is the, this is the new frontier. It's kind of a mix of the Internet and uh, talk radio. And uh, that, that's where I think it's, it has advantages because it's not you don't have the, the uh, reach as you would if you're on a, a syndicated radio program 
where you have millions of people just driving around or putting on their radio, which is all free. You just, it's thoughtless. You just turn on the radio, and there it is. You have to actually go out and find these podcasts. But you have advantages over talk radio in that you don't have to have commercials. There's no real uh, FCC guidelines on censorship or anything. You just go out there and say what you want. Some people are pretty vulgar on their podcasts, and uh, mine's G-rated uh, for a reason, because I want people to listen to it and not be uh, bogged down with vulgarity or th- anything like that. Um, but it, it is a nice mix of having the ability to talk about things as the Internet would on a variety of different topics and have the freedom of uh, a radio, a, a talk radio show. So podcasting is, is the new frontier in the media. Now, that creates an interesting dilemma for the old establishment media. And what Brokaw was doing in that American story where he was attacking Trump, he was circling the wagons around the establishment media because he is part of that. And they have lost almost all of their influence. Even cable news shows which still are popular. I mean, they get millions of listeners and millions of viewers a night. And depending on the, on the person, uh, even cable news shows are starting to take a hit because of things like podcasting and, of course, the Internet. Uh, no one watches the traditional news programs anymore. I mean, you know, they have ratings because people, I think that's because there's an older generation of people that will still watch those things. I haven't had on the network news in, I don't know, over a decade. I haven't put it on. Uh, it's just not something we do in my family anymore. It's it's not really that important. And so uh, I think that you still have the baby boomer generation that will watch the nightly news. But once they're gone, and they still get newspapers, but once they're gone, uh, and they're getting older. I mean, you got baby boomers now that are in their 70s, close to 80. So once they're gone, uh, I think you're going to see a situation where you know newspapers are already struggling. They're going to struggle even more. Uh, the nightly news is going to struggle to gain viewers and and and, and uh, you know have any influence. Uh, cable news, which uh, is kind of like my generation, people maybe just a little older than me. As soon as that generation starts to fade out, uh, that's going to go away. So young people who are listening to podcasts, I mean, this is how news is going to be done, and of course the internet and having it on your phone or your t- personal computer, you know, your, your device. And so this new frontier uh, of of news is very much like the old frontier of news, as I said, in the 18th and 19th century. So how is that the case? So I'm interested in history, and I've read all these newspapers, and that actually got me interested in thinking about history as a quote-unquote usable subject. And I know people don't like that term, particularly historians, because we just want to go out there and just talk about the history. But anyone who is a news junkie and starts reading history starts to connect the dots and say, you know, this is very much like this, or this is like this. This event is very much like this in the past. And so our love of history starts to influence how we look at things politically, whether you're on the left or the right. I mean, people that uh, – I remember uh, when I was in graduate school, I had the department chair at the time said the reason he got into history – or the reason he got into politics was because he read history and everything to him was on the left. I mean, he thought he viewed the world through, the left, through a lens of a leftist because of history. And I disagreed with him. I thought, well, I mean – there's some, it's a richer story than that. I mean, the stuff you're reading is going to influence what you, what you think, or how you think, I should say. But to him, being on the left was influenced because of history. That, that, that was, he, he, the way he read history was why he was the way he was, a leftist. So 
Uh, and I think you, if you ask people on the right or libertarians or, you know, whoever, you know, leftists, whoever you're talking about, they're going to probably say something like that. You know, my, my uh, position is influenced in the way I, in the way I view the world is influenced by the way I read history. And George Orwell was onto this, of course, with the character of Winston in 1984 when his job was to rewrite history. So as I got into history, that started really moving me in a direction of how I thought about the world and how I thought about American government, and how I thought about uh, American subjects, you know, American historical subjects. And one of the things that I started running into was newspapers. So I love reading newspapers. I'm an undergraduate. I go out and I, and I just, you know, go and get in these newspapers, and I go into my political science courses and my history courses, and, uh, you know, I'm debating these professors because my political science professors were all Marxists. Uh, they were interesting guys. I just didn't agree with them. And uh, we'd have debates, and it was fun. And I thought, this is the way it always is. What I didn't realize is that a lot of these people hated my guts. And, uh, you know, as I got out and I started seeing the left just became more vitriolic and more nasty, uh, and how, you know, even neoconservatives became this way as well, many of them. Uh, And they started, you know, blacklisting people and doing all these things. And so I started thinking to myself, well, what was the press like before? And as I started doing primary research on various subjects, you dive into these newspapers and you start finding out all of this stuff is biased. We have never had a unbiased press ever. And so when you have Donald Trump standing up and tweeting, and again, this is a new frontier for the president himself to personally tweet about things, which is social media. To use it the way he does, that's, that's revolutionary. This is William McKinley setting up a press corps, essentially, a briefing room, so the press can come in in, 18, in the 18, late 1890s. This is why McKinley is often called the first modern president, because he had a situation where the press could have daily access to him, and they actually crafted a message for the press. That was revolutionary in the late 19th century, and we haven't really moved beyond that until now. But when you go back to the way, say, Thomas Jefferson tried to influence the press, he would pay people to do things. He would pay people to write hit pieces on John Adams while he was vice president of the United States. And, of course, people like James Callender would then come up with fake news, a hearsay. And the nicest example of that is the Sally Hemings issue, which um, I think is more hearsay than anything. I know that there's. we could get into that whole issue. Uh, I am not a firm believer in the Sally Hemings situation. I think it's a lot of fake news. It's a lot of hearsay. And I know historians like Annette Gordon-Reed have made uh, you know, a name for themselves discussing this issue. But uh, I think there's too much circumstantial, ev- circumstantial evidence, and even people at the time thought, nah, this thing is just kind of hogwash. You know, Calendar's going out, and he's attacking Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson turned his back on him. But this was the way the press operated. So what you had in the United States in the 18th and 19th century, you had individuals who would go out and set up a press, and they would write, and they were biased. They were Democratic Republicans or just Republicans, or they were, uh, you know, Federalists, or they were, uh, you know, they became National Republicans. Uh, they became Whigs, or or then later Republicans, uh, and you still had the Democrats. So you would have these presses set up in a town. You might have a town 
where you have two or three newspapers, small newspapers in a small town. This is your talk radio because when you read these papers, the largest section oftentimes is an editorial section. And sometimes you would have the politicians themselves set these things up as the official mouthpiece for their views. And I ran into this quite a bit when I was writing my dissertation on James Byard in Delaware. And you're looking at press, at the press, and what it's doing during the Civil War, or the war between the states, and how it's operating. Of course, Lincoln, the Lincoln administration, shutting down some of these presses because they were so against his policies, and it was basically editorializing. So in Delaware, for example, you had several newspapers. Some were Republican organs, and they would pro promote the views of the administration. Some were Democratic organs, and they would be very much against the administration. They would be critical of Lincoln's policies and what was going on. And uh, that was commonplace. And so you bought a newspaper based on what you thought about things. If you were a Republican, you'd buy the Republican papers. If you were a Democrat, you'd buy the Democrat papers. Sometimes you'd have a subscription to one, to one of each. So you could see both sides of the issue. And that was common. That was normal. This is how people thought the press operated. In the uh, early 19th century in Virginia, you had a very famous group of individuals in Richmond. They called themselves, or at least they were called the Richmond Junto, people like Thomas Ritchie. And Thomas Ritchie was an important person in American politics for years in Virginia because of his activities as the opposition press. Even when uh, Republicans, uh, his, uh, you know, Democratic Republicans and then later Democrats were in power, Ritchie would still serve at times as the opposition. And, you know, John Taylor of Caroline was very famous for this. The man only served in the Senate for a very brief amount of time. He wasn't really a pop politician. He was a philosopher, a political philosopher, a pamphleteer. This is what he did. He went out and wrote books based on issues, you know, uh, whether it was um, uh, Federalist policy or, uh, you know, National Republican policy. His point was to denounce things like federally funded internal improvements and uh, high tariffs. Uh, and a broad interpretation of the Constitution. This is what he wrote about. He, he attacked John Marshall. This is the other thing Broncall got into. Well, we all know the, the federal, the federal judge, judge, judges are equal branch of government. So it's like nobody can ever say anything about the uh, federal judiciary as being wrong. But that's never been the case. <laughs> yeah, they're equal branches of government, so the president can make a statement about the federal judiciary being wrong. Why not? He, he's not doing anything about it, just saying, look, I think they're wrong. He can't say that anymore? You can't criticize another branch if you're in a different branch? Of course you can. So I bring up this Richmond Junto because there's going to be actually a major part of my forthcoming book on uh, Alexander Hamilton But when I get to the section on John Marshall and how uh, they were so critical of John Marshall and Joseph Story, and particularly when it came to the Judiciary Act of 1789, and one particular episode that I talk about in the book, and they were very critical of the federal court usurping power from the state courts. Uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 allowed for, and it was Section 27 of that law, allowed for a direct appeal of state court, state Supreme Court decisions to federal courts. And they were saying this is just completely preposterous. This is never uh, thought during the ratification debates or anything else that we would do something like this. And so they were highly critical of it, saying it was wrong. You know, essentially, John Taylor wrote a whole book on it. So uh, when we look at the press, 
and we look at what goes on today, I, w- I, I wish, what, what I wish for the press is that we just come out and say, look, here's my bias. This is what I am. I am pro this person. Now, when you have these news shows at night, cable news shows, you know, you've got, uh, uh, starting about 5 o'clock at night, you've got all the cable news shows, and everyone knows, you know, Rachel Maddow is on the left. And so if you want to get what the left is thinking about things, you go watch Rachel Maddow. Uh, everyone knows, uh, you know, people like Sean Hannity speak for the mainstream conservative group. And if you want to know what that is, you go out and watch Sean Hannity. Um, you know, so this is how you get the news nowadays. You go watch these different news news talk shows. And Donald Trump has been very open about this. this is how he used to get it. He would just watch the cable news and and he when he mentions things and people say that's fake news he's just getting it off the off the cable news at night he he's a news junkie he goes and watches news this is how we get our news now he doesn't he, and he used to go out from what i understand i don't know if he still does it but he used to get several newspapers a day just to see what people were saying about him and he would read all these different newspapers so he's a news junkie donald trump is a news junkie and this is why he uses social media the way he does because it's the new medium of news People go out and they look at their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed, and this is how they get news. See what's going on. They're seeing what people are saying about different things and, and how people are, are you know framing different debates. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's very healthy, in fact, to have all these different voices of opinion. But what happened is the establishment media doesn't want that. They want their voice, and that's it. And they say they're objective, but they're really not. So that is the great danger of the establishment media. We need to go back to the 18th and 19th century, when news was biased, and everyone knew it, and everyone accepted that. And so you pick the news based on what you think about things. You pick this podcast, for example, because you know my biases. I'm not on the left. Uh, So you know I'm not going to come out with a left-wing view on things. I'm not a Marxist. And the other thing I do is, of course, bring historical perspective I used to call what I'm doing here, I was my founding perspective, um, because I look at things through maybe a lens of you know the, the founding period and how things were working at that time and how it's so different today. But in so many ways, as I mentioned, I'm connecting the dots here, podcasting and the internet were going back to the 18th and early 19th century because we have now variety of opinion. You can listen to this podcast for 30 minutes when I put it out. You can listen to another podcast that disagrees with me entirely. And that's that's great. Do it. Go out and listen to different points of view. Uh, you should listen to mine, of course, more than anyone else. But uh, uh, go out and listen to different points of view. Go out and get another another perspective on something. Because, of course, mine is my view based on how I viewed history, how I've read history, uh, the primary documents I've read, the things that I've that that I've explored in historic profession, the literature I've read. So it's based on experience and my education. And someone else is going to have a different set of experiences and a different view from education. I mean, I saw it all the time in graduate school. You'd have people like that professor I was talking about who looked at things from the left because he said this is what he got out of history. That's that. So when you look at the press, Tom Brokaw is so wrong for coming out and circling the wagons and somehow criticizing Trump because they can count electoral college votes and they can count, uh, you know, uh, inaugural crowds. Well, uh, yeah, they can count electoral college votes, sure. But, of course, right up to the election, they were saying that 
Trump had no shot of winning the election. And now you have them, the press, saying his election is illegitimate, essentially, because he didn't win the popular vote. <laughs> I guess that they consider you know Benjamin Harrison's election in uh, 1888 as illegitimate. He didn't win the popular vote, but he still was president. Nobody ever goes back and says, you know, Benjamin Harrison was illegitimate uh, because he didn't win the popular vote, and he still won the election. No one said that. But no one says that in history. Oh, well, that's the way it works. Uh, unless we're in modern times, and of course, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to work now. We're supposed to have the popular vote winner win the presidency. So this is the, uh, this is the great uh, you know, problem with the media is that they hide behind this supposed veil of objectivity, and they say we're objective, the mainstream media in particular. They say they're objective, but they're really not. They're really not objective, and they never have been. The media has never been objective. So what we really need in America is not an objective press. We need a free press and an independent press. We don't even need a fair press. They don't need to be fair. They just need to be free and independent. And they need to be biased. What Americans have to understand is that they need to be biased. We just need to be open about what our biases are. That is the kicker. That is the, that is the point that the press needs to make. Not that they're objective, but that they aren't objective. And if they just started opening up to that and say, here we are, uh, welcome to ABC News, we're on the left. Okay. Welcome to NBC Nightly News, we're on the left. Welcome to MSNBC News, we're on the far left. Welcome to Fox News, we're on the right. The mainstream right. Just say it. And then people would say, okay, I know what I'm getting here. And I can choose to watch it or not. But what, what they've done is tried to hide behind this objectivity. So they get viewers and uh, you know they try to subtly er nudge you in some direction that they want to nudge you in. I think that's the whole key to this idea of objectivity. It was actually dishonest and disingenuous. We need a, a free press and an independent press not a fair press. If we could get that somehow, if we could somehow get us to a situation where we're back in the 18th and 19th century, I think Americans would be much happier with their news. Uh, those old newspapers that you had two or three a town, now those are websites. You've got two or three in a town that go through the news. Even in my home state, you've got one uh, website that's dedicated kind of a left-wing news for the state. You've got one that's dedicated to the right-wing news for the state. I mean, they, they and you can read both and get a different perspective from, from both uh, and figure out you know, what you're getting out of that. Uh, and they're very popular websites, both of them. And that's great. We should have more of that kind of stuff. State websites focused on state issues and state politics. We don't have enough of that. We focus too much on the quote-unquote national. So this is a think locally, act locally minute as well. Websites serve to think, to think locally and act locally. This is what, this is what we do. And so this podcast, which of course kind of does have a, a overall scope to it, but I'm always encouraging you to go out and think for yourself in your own town, your own community, and focus on that too. Get your local newspaper and get involved in those things. Read your, you know, start a local website. That's if you like news, get out there and start a local website and start promoting that thing around. Go interview your city councilman. What's going on here and uh, what's going on there in your local uh, area? Do that. 
that's a niche that's not even being explored by a lot of people yet. And I think people would find it refreshing. You get more news, more local news. Figure out what these what these people are doing in your city council, your county council. And talk about that stuff. Usually you get like in your local paper, you know, maybe a page of local news. They went to the council meeting and they said this. Go and interview those people. Hey, can you tell us about this? I'm doing a you know local uh, show here, local website about local news. And do that. And uh, I think you, you would get a lot of, of traffic uh, from people in your community and just advertise it. You know, you don't have to spend money. Just promote it around among people. You know, hey, did you see this website? But, of course, it's probably going to be biased. You're going to have your own position. So uh, I think it's important to understand that smaller, in this particular case, is often better. You have these small websites, more voices, more opinion, and that's how you get things. And this is how, you know, we put all this stuff together and you get the news. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.